Okay, there we are. Well, if you would turn to Mark chapter 10 with me. I taught on this chapter this morning. Um, we took kind of a bird's eye view of the entire chapter, and so tonight I want to narrow it down a little bit and look specifically at uh, verses 17 through 31. So Mark chapter 10, beginning in verse 17. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And, Jesus, and he said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, See, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. We, uh, we live in a day and age in which we have two problems. Uh, first of all, is one that's been plaguing humanity since the beginning of time, and that's pride. But the second is one that's a little more specific to the church, and that's that we don't care about theology. We seem to have bought into this lie that it doesn't matter what you believe as long as you believe it. It doesn't matter what you sacrifice for as long as you sacrifice everything for it. As long as we all love Jesus, we're all in the same boat. And I'm here tonight to tell you that is incredibly, incredibly inaccurate. And the rich young ruler's question in verse 17 illustrates exactly what I'm talking about. Because he got his theology wrong, everything that flowed out of it was wrong as well. Uh, I believe it was Duane on Wednesday night who said that your theology is the basis for your sanctification. So your sanctification is going to flow out of what you believe. Steve Lawson once said that the higher your theology, the higher your thoughts of God, then the higher your praise and worship will be. So this idea that theology doesn't matter, that it's not important, that we don't really need to pay attention to it, I'm here to tell you tonight is absolutely absurd. And so I'd like us to look at this passage and we'll see why. So... In this question, in verse 17, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? The rich young ruler, he makes three fundamental mistakes, theologically. And they're all wrapped up in this one question. He says, Good teacher, what must I do? 
to inherit eternal life. And that's the key phrase in this question. That's where he went wrong. What must I do to inherit eternal life? What good work can I perform to inherit eternal life? And it shows a fundamental misunderstanding of three things. God's righteousness, his own supposedly good works, and his own sins. We're going to look at those each individually. Fundamentally, the rich young man failed to grasp those three things. So first, he doesn't understand God's righteousness. By asking what he must do to inherit eternal life, he displays an ignorance of perfection. Too often, we do not understand how righteous God is, and thus, we fail to grasp our own inability to fulfill the standard he has set for us. We read in the law of Ten Commandments, specifically, that apply to us today. And Jesus lists six of them here. These Ten Commandments are essentially what it would take to consider yourself perfect. And we know there's two tables in the law. Historically, it's been divided into two tables. The first being our relation to God, and the second being our relation to man. And Jesus lists the six commandments that deal with our relationship to man. Now, you might wonder, why does he do that? Well, I'm not entirely sure. I'm not going to give you a definitive answer. But I think it's because he knew those six commandments alone would be enough to condemn the man. You don't even, he didn't even need to get into uh, your relationship, the man's relationship with God. He knew that he could just take those six commandments and use them alone to condemn the man. And because this man failed to understand those six very specific commandments, he comes to Jesus with this question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He fell into the same trap the Pharisees fell into. He, same, he fell into the same trap the Catholics today fall into. He fell into the same trap that everybody outside of Christianity today falls into, which is that there's something good I must do to inherit eternal life. There's something good I must do to have a pleasant and peaceful experience after death. There is a good work I must perform. He fails to grasp just how perfect God is. He fails to grasp God's holiness, the righteousness of God. He says, in effect, surely God cannot be perfectly righteous. Surely he does not expect total purity and holiness from us. Surely God is not righteous. Surely God is not holy. Surely God will turn a blind eye to some things. He will meet me halfway. And thus, if I can just do my best, God will look on favor toward me. God will look on me with favor. But God is not like man. God cannot turn a blind eye to sin. God cannot ignore it. So flowing out of this fundamental misunderstanding of God's righteousness, the second thing the young man fails to grasp is his own righteousness, his own supposedly good works, the good things he might do to inherit eternal life in his mind. Jesus lists six commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And the rich young man says, I've done all these things. All of these things I have kept since my youth, which we already know is false in and of itself. But he says it anyway. I have kept all these things from my youth. So Jesus says, why do you call me good? No one is good but God alone. And the rich young ruler says, yeah, me too. Me too. I've got that one too. 
So in Jesus' response, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. A lot of people will read into that that Jesus is denying his own sense of deity. He's saying, well, I'm not God. Only God is good. And so in that question, in that statement that why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Jesus is separating himself from God. He's distancing himself from God. I don't think that's Jesus' point here. In fact, I know it's not because Jesus elsewhere claims deity for himself. He says, I and the Father are one. John chapter 1, verses 1 through 18 is a wonderful passage on the deity of Christ. So Jesus here isn't saying, I am not God, and thereby separating himself from the Father. Rather, what he's doing is he's saying, only God is good. And he's separating the rich young ruler from God. He's saying, if you are going to call me good, if you're going to come to me and you're going to call me good teacher, then you must recognize that I am God. Because only God is good. Only God is good. And if only God is good, then I am God. If I am good, and only God is good, then I am God. You are not. You are not God, and you are not good. So by asking this question, making that statement that no one is good except God alone, far from distancing himself from God, Jesus is actually distancing the rich young ruler from God. He's saying, look, God's righteousness is here. Your righteousness is here. You have none. Standing up against total and complete perfection, you have no righteousness in and of yourself. Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. By identifying himself with God, a man that the rich young ruler knew was good. The rich young ruler knew Jesus was good. And Jesus says, yes, you're right. I am good. I am God. By claiming deity... Jesus is separating the rich young ruler from any claim to righteousness that he can make. Any and all claims to righteousness. But the rich young ruler still doesn't understand that. Because after listing these commandments, he says, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. He still insists on saying, I am good. I have done these things. Clearly, I should merit eternal life. Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. So out of these two things, a fundamental misunderstanding of God's righteousness and a fundamental misunderstanding of his own supposedly good works, flowing out of these two things, the ruler fails to understand his own sin. The ruler fails to grasp just how wicked and depraved and wretched his own soul is. Because he did not understand God's righteousness, He had a fundamental misunderstanding of his own righteousness. And because he had a fundamental misunderstanding of his own righteousness, he had a fundamental misunderstanding of his own sin. Because he underestimated God's righteousness, he overestimated his own righteousness, and then in turn underestimated his own sin. You see how theology affects how you do and view everything? God surely is not righteous. And surely, therefore, I can measure up to him. Surely, therefore, my sin is not so great. And suddenly you become, just like that, lethargic. You become lazy. You stop pursuing sanctification. You stop striving for holiness because I've got it. God's not righteous, so therefore I'm good enough, and I've made it. You see how your theology affects everything you do, the way you view the entire world. So this idea that theology is unimportant, I think, is absolutely absurd. 
So again, flowing out of his misunderstanding of God's righteousness, his misunderstanding of his own righteousness, our rich young ruler this evening underestimated his own sin. You might think of it like this. If I hold a piece of coal in my hands, I can clearly look at it and see that it's black. That's the color. There's no arguing that. Coal is black, obviously. But if I take that same piece of coal and I lay it in sparkling white snow, the contrast between the whiteness of the snow and the blackness of the coal highlights both. It overemphasizes both to where you don't really appreciate how dark the coal is until you lay it in the snow. And you don't really appreciate how white the snow is until you, lay it, until you hold it up in contrast to the coal. Similarly, you will never understand how wretched and depraved your human nature is, your soul is, until you hold it up to the standard of God's word. And that's what we try so desperately to avoid doing in our own lives, to hold ourselves up to the standard of God's word. So desperately we try to say, I'm not as bad as the next guy. I'm not as bad as the guy who's going to be in front of me. Surely I'm not Hitler, so I'm okay. And we're getting back to God turning a blind eye to your sin. Underestimating God's righteousness, overestimating our righteousness, and then in turn underestimating our own sin. Because when we don't have a proper view of God's righteousness, we have an improper view of our own sin. It's natural and it logically flows. It has to. When you fail to grasp God's righteousness, you fail to grasp your own sin. And Jesus corrects all three flaws with one simple question. Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. God alone is good. He says, if you are going to call me good, you must acknowledge that I am God because only God is good. And again, by claiming deity, Jesus separates the rich young man from any claim to righteousness he might make. Only God is good. You are correct in acknowledging that I am good because only God is good and I am God. You are not, therefore you are not good. And he lists several commandments to prove that. And the rich young man says, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. Jesus in his question and statement says, God is good, you do not live up to perfection, and you are wicked. He then goes on to get to the heart of the matter. Rather than merely dealing with the young man's outward actions, our Lord gets to the heart of the matter, as he is so apt to do. Verse 21, And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Jesus was not going to stand here and take the man at his word. All these I have kept from my youth. But he kind of pretends that he does. He says, he doesn't refute that. He says, you lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. So going back to these commandments, this latter table of the law, that Jesus speaks about. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. All these six commandments show us what it means to love our neighbor. When asked what the greatest commandment is, Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. 
The greatest commandment is to love God, and a second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. On these depend all the law and the prophets. So the greatest commandment is to love God, and a second like it is to love your neighbor. And Jesus immediately exposes that this man does not love his neighbor. If all six of these commandments come together and show us how to love our neighbor, then naturally, if you're keeping these six commandments, you're going to love your neighbor. But Jesus shows that this isn't true. That the young man didn't love his neighbor, and therefore wasn't keeping all six of those commandments. You lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. He gets immediately to the heart of the problem. Because righteousness isn't about pious outward acts. The Pharisees should prove that to us. To sum them up, these commandments teach us how to love our neighbor. Jesus, by telling this man, you must sell all your possessions, he exposes that this man loves his possessions, his wealth, his money, his respect that he gets, his status in society, more than his neighbor. He values these things above anyone and everyone else. These things are more important to him than his neighbor. These things are more important to him even than his own soul. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose his soul? And yet this is exactly the trade that our rich young ruler made. And in seeking to preserve his name and his status among the community, what's ironic is that we don't even know his name. We have no idea what to call him other than rich young ruler that came to Jesus and went away disheartened because he loved his possessions. And so by clinging to his life, by clinging to his earthly life, and his fame and his possessions and his status in the community, we've forgotten who he is, other than some guy that came to ask Jesus a question and went away disheartened because he loved his money. So 2,000 years later, rather than saying there was a man and calling him by name who came to Jesus and he sold his possessions and he followed Jesus and he was a wonderful example of what we should emulate, a man of faith. No. We just read of an anonymous young man who is actually a wonderful example of what not to do. By By clinging to his earthly life, he lost it. Verse 22 is extremely telling because it shows us more than anything else, even more than his own soul, this rich young man loved his possessions. He was willing to cling on to them even if it meant forfeiting eternal life. So moving on to verse 23. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. Taken alone, Just this sentence, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. You might think that Jesus is only talking about those who are rich, those who have pursued earthly wealth and attained it. But I would bring up two points in response to that. First of all, the disciples' reaction in verse 24, and the disciples were amazed at his words. Now, if you just said how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God, Okay, that's something. It's difficult, it's hard, um, but it's not really something to be amazed by. And then skip down really quick to verse 26. 
after Jesus repeats himself, uh, it says of the apostles, and they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, then who can be saved? So if Jesus here in verse 23, and then again in verse, verses 24 and 25, is only talking about those who are rich, that's nothing to be amazed by, and yet the disciples are amazed. It's nothing really to be astonished by, and yet we read that they're astonished. They're blown away that Jesus could say this. And what is their question? Then, who can be saved? This should show us that Jesus' words actually have a greater application, a more universal application that applies to not just the rich, the wealthy, and the famous, but to everyone everywhere. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished. Not just were they amazed, verse 24, Not just were they astonished, verse 26, but they were amazed and exceedingly astonished. We might say, you could have knocked me over with a feather. They were exceedingly astonished at his words. And I think the key to that is found in verse 24. Verses 24 and 25. Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. Now, if you have an ESV translation, you probably have a footnote And at the bottom, it says, some manuscripts add, for those who trust in riches. So it would read actually something like this. Children, how difficult it is for those who trust in riches to enter the kingdom of God. Which, I'm not going to sit here and critique anyone who wrote this or who translated the ESV, but I am going to say that phrase would be a clarifying point. Because it shows that Jesus is talking more about uh, universally, people universally, rather than just rich people specifically. And furthermore, it would clarify that he's talking about people trusting in their riches, not, uh, not people who are simply just rich. Now, again, the ESV was translated by people much smarter than I am, and I'm not going to stand here and tell you that they did it wrong. I think they actually probably did it right. I am not at all claiming to be smarter than they, am, than they are. But that is a good clarifying point, I think, for those who trust in riches to enter the kingdom of God. Verse 25. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Now this uh, illustration Jesus uses I think is interesting. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Now, uh, some people will say this camel going through the eye of a needle, well, what it really is is there was... uh, the city, and it had a small gate. And the purpose of the small gate was that only one person could go through at a time. And so should the city ever be attacked, even if the enemy got the gate open, they would only be able to trickle in one at a time, and so it would be much easier to defend the city should an enemy attack. Now, where the camel comes in is that any time you wanted to bring a camel into this city, it would have to kind of crawl down on its knees and scoot its way through the gate. And so Jesus is saying, just like it's difficult for a camel to enter through the eye of a needle, proverbial eye of the needle, so it's difficult for a rich man to get through the gate into the kingdom of God. But I don't believe that's what Jesus is saying. 
And I'll tell you why. Verse 26, and they were exceedingly astonished. They were exceedingly astonished. Then who can be saved? If Jesus in this illustration is merely saying it's difficult, it's a hard task, and somewhat improbable, it's uncomfortable, it would be incredibly laborious for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God, then this is really nothing to be astonished by. It's merely just an extra hoop they have to jump through, so to speak. A rich man just has to do a little bit more than most people, and he'll be good to go. But that doesn't fit into the context of Jesus' conversation with the rich young ruler. Not at all. Not at all. Jesus exposed the rich young ruler's heart and showed that the righteousness, any pious righteous acts he was performing, were not motivated by a pure heart and a desire to see God glorified. So that illustration wouldn't fit into the larger context of Jesus' conversation with the rich young ruler, nor would it explain verse 26, and they were exceedingly astonished. Rather, I think what Jesus is getting at here is a literal camel going through a literal eye of a needle. And any of you who have any experience with needles know that the eye of a needle is about that big. So to push this animal larger than a horse through the eye of a needle is absolutely impossible. Not improbable, not difficult, not unlikely, completely and entirely impossible. You will not do it, I guarantee you. It used to be popular to say, well, when, it'll be a hot day in August when, or it'll be a cold day in August when, fill in the blank. Or you might say, yeah, pigs will fly before fill in the blank. And the point of those sayings is to say, as incredible and miraculous and, and insane as it would be to imagine a cold day in August or pigs flying, that would still be more logical and more reasonable than to consider whatever the subject matter is. And that's, I think, what Jesus is getting at here. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. He's saying it is absolutely ridiculous to think that a camel, a camel, could fit through the eye of a needle. And if you've seen a camel, they are massive. They are massive creatures. As ridiculous as, and as incredible as it would be for a camel to go through the eye of a needle, you should rather dream of that happening than for a rich man trusting in his riches to get into the kingdom of God. A rich man who has clung so tightly to his riches that he refuses to let them go even at the expense of his soul you should sooner dream of a camel fitting through the eye of a needle than that man getting into the kingdom of God. Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? they realize exactly what Jesus is saying. It is completely and entirely impossible for anyone to be saved. A camel would go through the eye of the needle first. I believe it was uh, George Whitfield once who said, uh, get to heaven on my works. 
I'd rather, I would sooner dream of climbing to the moon on a rope, rope made of sand. It's the exact same message. It is completely and entirely impossible to get to heaven based on your own works. And the disciples pick up on that. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, then who can be saved? And Jesus confirms what they were thinking. Verse 27, Jesus looked at them and said, with man it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. Not improbable, not difficult, not unlikely, not laborious, completely and entirely impossible. And why? Well, Jesus showed us in his conversation with the rich young man. Verse 21, And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have, and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. It's not enough to do pious, righteous acts before others. And so often that's what we get content with, right? So often we are contented to just come to church and do our part, play our little role before the community, and then go home and do whatever we like. And we're contented to receive the praise and admiration of our fellow churchgoers as we come to church, as we worship faithfully, as we sit in the pew, listen to the sermon, sing the songs, go through all the motions. We're content with that. We're content to go through the outward steps, these seemingly pious actions, and yet not have any real motivation for God's glory, not have any real motivation for sanctification, for growing in Christ-likeness, for holiness, for righteousness. None of these things. We're content to sit in the pew and receive the admiration of men, our fellow churchgoers, who will look at us and say, look at him, look at her, a model Christian. We should all emulate them. And there's something satisfying about that, I will admit. There is something satisfying about hearing someone say, yeah, we should emulate so-and-so. But so often we're content with that. So often we come to church for that very purpose. So often we go through the motions for that very purpose. And I'm not here to beat anyone over the head with a Bible except myself. Because so often I come to church to go through the motions. So often all of us come to church to go through the motions. Because we are content with outwardly pious acts that look righteous and garner and elicit praise from our fellow churchgoers. We're not content with righteousness. We don't want righteousness. We don't want sanctification. So often we get caught up in being content with the praise and admiration of fellow churchgoers. Jesus exposes the young man's heart. And this is fundamentally why it's impossible to be saved. Because your heart, as Jeremiah says, is wicked and deceitful above all things. Who can know it? Isaiah tells us that our good works, our righteousness, is just filthy rags. I was, uh, I was having a conversation with a friend this past week, and he asked me, so then... 
does that mean no one who's not a Christian can do anything good? Does that mean that no one who's not a Christian can do any righteous work? Well, the answer, it's a good question, it's a fair question, and the answer requires a bit of nuance. Yes and no. So obviously, everyone can do some good things. And this rich, rich young ruler is proof of that. The Pharisees were proof of that. As horrible, hard-hearted, prideful, and arrogant as they were, the Pharisees are proof of that. They prayed, they tithed, they went through all the motions, they did everything right, outwardly. So no, you do not have to be in Christ to do some outwardly good works. But the Pharisees and the rich young ruler are both great examples of what I do mean when I say that you have to be in Christ to do good works. What I mean by that is that your heart has to be motivated by the right things. A proper motivation isn't a pharisaical motivation, which is to stand on the street corner and pray these long prayers with these long, eloquent words and receive praise and admiration of men. A proper motivation isn't to drop your coin loudly in the box so that others will hear what you're doing. A proper motivation isn't to sprinkle ashes and contort your face before others while you're fasting so that others will see your righteousness. A proper motivation, rather, is God's glory and God's glory alone. And you see the difference between the two. The most fundamental difference is that a proper motivation for righteous and pious works is God's glory. An improper motivation for righteous and pious works is your own glory. And so that's the fundamental question that needs to be asked, is why do you do the good work? And the answer to that question is going to, answer, is going to tell you whether or not it is a good work motivated by proper and righteous, righteous uh, motivations. If that good work is brought about by good, proper, and righteous motivations, then you will say, the only reason I do this good work is God's glory, not my own. I want no recognition of this. I want no praise. I want no admiration. I want nothing. I don't even need a thank you. I'm going to do it because this is God's command to me as his chosen child. Before I started teaching, I believe it was, um, Rob said to me, one of his favorite sayings, one of his favorite quotes was, and I don't even remember who it was by, preach the gospel, die, and be forgotten. And it's a comforting quote. But more importantly, it puts everything into perspective. It puts everything into perspective because my job, as I stand here before you, isn't to garner praise and admiration for myself. And Rob would say the exact same thing. And Mr. Campbell, who preached this morning, would say the exact same thing. And any preacher worth his salt would say the exact same thing. I'm not here to stand before you and garner any praise or admiration for myself. I'm here to stand before you to glorify God. For the edification of the saints. To help us all grow in Christ-likeness. That is the job this evening. To worship God and lift his name on high. So, is it possible for someone outside of Christ to do good works? Yes. But they're not truly good. They're not truly good...
because they're not motivated by a pure heart. Rather, they're motivated by an incredibly selfish and arrogant heart. So verse 27, Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. So after getting through saying, It is impossible for anyone to be saved, you should sooner dream of a camel going through the eye of a needle. It's impossible, completely and entirely. Jesus says, But. But there's a way out. It's impossible, yes, but only for men. It is impossible for a man to be saved, but only for men. For God, all things are possible. Jesus doesn't leave his disciples in despair, wondering, well then, what are we even doing here? Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Rather, he says, yes, it is impossible for you, but not for God. Because your righteousness is nothing. And your sin is so great, there is no way you could possibly redeem yourself and bring yourself into heaven. Completely and entirely impossible. You cannot do it. And so there we see a proper view of our own good works and our own sin. But with God, all things are possible. With man it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. Because God's righteousness is such that he is able to redeem. God is not bound by sin like you and I. God is not subject to death like you and I. Yet, God subjected himself to death. God is not bound by flesh, yet God the Son veiled himself in human flesh. God does not die, yet God the Son took on human flesh and was nailed to a cross and suffered the wrath of God for three hours on the cross. The wrath that justly should have been poured out on you and I, Christ suffered on the cross for three hours. An eternity worth of hell experienced in three hours. With man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. So then the natural question at this point is, Well, if God's righteous, how can I be saved? Again, the death of Christ. Because yes, that punishment should have been given to you. That wrath should have been poured out on you. But we have a substitute. We have an atonement. We have someone who stepped in and said, Wait, I am perfect. I am righteous. I am good. I am God. And I will bear the punishment for these sinners. And that's the beauty of the gospel. That a righteous and holy God is at once just just and the justifier of those who have faith in him. He's at once just and righteous and holy and will punish all sin and will by no means clear the guilty. And yet he also has grace and mercy on those who have faith in him. That's the beauty of the gospel. Not that you're going to receive anything In this world, not that you're going to receive material blessings, but that God Almighty veiled himself in human flesh and bore the punishment that we deserve. That's the beauty of the gospel. 
So verse 28. Peter began to say to him, See, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold. Now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecution and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. So, what does Jesus mean by... Uh, you will receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands. I'm not going to stand here and tell you that you're going to receive material blessings or you're going to receive riches and wealth and fame and prosperity and health. Because it's just not true. You might in this life become rich. You might in this life experience health. You might in this life experience some measure of fame even. But that's not guaranteed to you by the gospel, and that is not at all what Jesus is talking about here. I think personally the best explanation for this verse uh, is to cross-reference it with Mark chapter 3, beginning in verse 31. And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside, seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. So perhaps that's what Jesus is saying here. Is that you come into the kingdom of God. You're adopted as God's son. And you look around and you have a greater family than one you could have ever dreamt of having. Perhaps that's what Jesus is getting at here. I guarantee you he is, not, he is not promising you physical blessings and prosperity. I guarantee it. Why? Because 2,000 years of church history testify to countless, countless martyrs for the faith. An immeasurable amount of blood has been spilled on soil all across the world. Too much for me to stand here and tell you you're going to be happy, healthy, and wealthy. But I don't think it's right for us to just focus on anything we're promised in this life. Be it houses, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, lands, whatever. I think what we really should be focusing on is the end of verse 30. And in the age to come, eternal life. See, my problem with the prosperity gospel, it's not that it promises too much. It's not that you hear someone like Joel Osteen preach and you say, man, he's just putting too much to the gospel. His gospel promises far too much. No, Joel Osteen's gospel doesn't promise nearly enough. The biblical gospel, the gospel of Christ, the gospel of Paul, the gospel of 2,000 years of church history that sustained the life of people even as they were being dragged to their deaths. That gospel, what that promises you is in the age to come, eternal life. And so when you hear that you're going to receive material blessings, don't think that that's too much, that God couldn't possibly do that, or that you're reading too much into the gospel. Rather, think you're not being promised enough. You're not being told 
the true extent of the beauty of the gospel. You're not being shown how glorious and great our gospel is. That Christ came to earth and bore the punishment for our sins. He made him to be sin who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. And what is the greatest promise of the gospel in the age to come, eternal life? That's the promise of the gospel, and don't ever let go of it. Because it is the most precious and beautiful gift you've ever been given. And then verse 31. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. And Jesus here shows us exactly what it means to love our neighbor. It's not to come and demand service. It's not to come and demand your own rights. It's not to come and demand anything of anyone else, but rather it's to get on your knees and serve someone else. For even the Son of Man did not come to serve, or to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Many who are first will be last, and the last first. That's what it means to love your neighbor. That's what the latter table of the Ten Commandments teaches us. That your job is not to demand your rights. It's not to stand before men and demand anything at all of them. But rather, your job is to serve. Your job is to count others as greater than yourself and to prioritize their needs above your own. That is how we love our neighbor. That is how we glorify and honor God. Because we read all throughout the Psalms, all throughout the Proverbs, in the book of Jeremiah, all throughout the Bible, that God opposes the proud. God hates the proud. Isn't this what happened in Genesis? Isn't this why God flooded the world? Because men became arrogant and wicked and prideful, and every single thought, every single desire of their heart was wickedness continually. And God flooded the world because of it. The most fundamental basic sin is pride. We often hear that quote, that the love of money is the root of all evil. But it's missing two key words. Two key words, kinds and of. The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Because the root of all evil is not the love of money, although that is an evil, and surely it will lead men to do evil things. The root of all evil is actually pride, and it's exactly how Satan tempted the the woman in the garden. It's exactly what he promised her. Ye shall be as gods, if you will but listen to me. It's what he tried to use to tempt Jesus in the wilderness. If you will but bow down to me and worship me, then I will give you all the world. I will give you fame, riches, wealth honor, glory. Pride is the fundamental sin because out of it flows everything else. Fundamentally, pride is a desire to rule our own life, to be the captain of our own destiny. Fundamentally, at the heart of every sin lies pride. And Jesus here tells us we are not to be proud. Rather, in the age to come, many who are first will be last, and the last first. And should we not seek to emulate that today in our own life? Should we not seek 
to live as righteously as we can. And thus, we will consider ourselves last. We will prioritize others before ourselves. That's what it means to love our neighbor. And that's what the rich young man could not grasp because his heart was hardened. He didn't recognize his need for a savior. He underestimated God's righteousness. He overestimated his own righteousness. And he underestimated his own sin. Let's pray. Father God, we praise you for you are at once the just and the justifier of those who have faith in you. You are righteous and holy beyond anything we could ever imagine. And yet, Lord, you have seen fit to save a people for yourself. You have seen fit to look upon us, sinners, with grace and mercy and kindness and steadfast love. And so I pray, Lord, that we would never fall into the trap of being proud or trusting in our own works or going through the motions content to be praised and admired by men. But rather, in everything we do, we would seek to glorify and honor you that our only motivation would be to see your name high and lifted up, praised among all the nations in the world. Pray, Lord, that you would use this passage to edify all of us. Anything I have said that is not worth repeating, Lord, may it be forgotten and cast aside. And let only the good and the biblical things that I have said remain so that we may all grow in our Christ-likeness. I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.